The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, this is a long passage with a lot of allusions to the Old Testament in it and um, many deep things to consider from it. But I pray today that you would take your word by your spirit and make a few very, very important things simple and powerful for us. I pray that you would take a few things and fortify us by your spirit. You fortify us to endure. But not just to endure life, but to endure life in life, in your resurrection life to life to the resurrection life that you hold out for us. So as was spoken of earlier and prayed about, would you make us wise for this? Would you teach us? Father, I have um, printed and scribbled words on these pages, and even, even in my best moments, I am not sufficient for, to accomplish what I pray for here. John Piper or John MacArthur or Jonathan Edwards were here. All three of them together could not do what we ask for. We ask for your spirit to come and implant your word within us and fortify us for life. So please glorify yourself in this way now. Please work among us. Please make your word clear. Please constrain my words, talk over my words, talk through my words, and work, we pray. Amen. Last week, Pastor Steve finished his series on the resurrection life from Romans 8. The point, one of the big points, was that the gospel is not just about learning to do good. It is about relationship. We are united to Christ by His Spirit, and now the Spirit of Christ, Christ in us, governs us in love to love. We are no longer governed by the old way of the law, but by the Spirit of Christ. That is good news. His resurrection life is now ours by relationship with Him, by His Spirit. Therefore, we are to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, the truth in the Bible. As the Spirit takes that truth and causes us to walk in love, we become more authentically human, more like Jesus. Now, Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 that whoever the Spirit leads is a child of God. That's our new identity. The Spirit convinces our hearts that we are indeed His children that we will indeed inherit everything that is His. 
provided that, he says in Romans 8, we suffer with him. Suffering is a reality for each of us. As, as Dickens wrote in The Tale of Two Cities, life itself is the best of times and the worst of times. I think that's why that phrase so, has so resonated with people over the years. That's life. But thanks be to God that we are led by His Spirit through life, through the best of times and the worst of times. The question before us this morning, the question that I would like us to examine this morning is how? How does the Spirit lead us through the best of times and the worst of times? So I would like to do that through Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is similar to Romans 8, but, but different. One key difference is that uh, Hebrews 12 gives us more detail on the how, just how we endure and as I prayed, not just how we endure, but how we endure in life, in resurrection life to resurrection life. So I encourage you, read Romans 8 this afternoon. Read it, compare it to Hebrews 12, but it's to Hebrews 12 that we'll turn to now. The writer is speaking largely to a Jewish people who are all experiencing some kind of suffering, and whatever it was they were all experiencing it together, and they were tempted to give up. They were tempted to turn back to the old law. So the, the writer is, in many ways, consistently coming back to this theme. Don't give up. Stick with Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no life. Period. He begins by, in chapter 12 here, by comparing this life to a long-distance foot race, verses, verse 1, where some people from the Old Testament mentioned in the previous chapter have already finished. Um, if you've ever run in a local road race, there's a, there's a picture there that I think is a great analogy to what the writer is saying here. If you've, unless you're first, you're running and you're getting closer to the end and you see the skinnier, faster people who have already finished. You know, and they already have the medals around their neck and they've, they've run back up the race course. And they're, they're cheering you on. Keep going. Keep going. And at first you, you know, resent the fact, man, you are so fast. <laughs> but then you think, you see the medal around their neck and you think, it's coming. The, the, the end is, is real. I'm not going to die. It's coming. It's there. I will keep going. So the writer, the writer is giving us this picture, this picture, and he's saying these people they, they've already finished, and, and they are witnesses. That, that, yes, they are witnessing you, but what they're really witnessing to by the reward that they already have around their neck is that the reward is real. Keep going, don't give up. It is worth it. So how do we keep going though? That, that that's the question, especially when life feels like the wall at mile 20 of a marathon where most people are tempted to give up. Just how do we lay aside every weight and run with endurance? The short but profound answer is in verse 2, look to Jesus. Just a, just a side note here. This, this happens all the time in Scripture. 
if you see in, in, in your translation, in my translation in verse 2, it says uh, the, the command, don't give up, lay aside every weight, and run the race with endurance. That's the command. And then the how is put in the form of an ing phrase, an ing phrase. How you do it is by looking to Jesus. That's the, that, and that's all over scripture. You see it all the time. Command, how do I do that? Ing phrase, somewhere nearby. That's what's happening here. How do we endure? By looking to Jesus. So, while I, I, I cannot explain every detail of this chapter, not even close, um, nor can I get even close to explaining all the particulars of your life, or your trials. But I do want to draw out two truths that we see from this chapter, two, two truths that we see as we look to Jesus that enable us to endure in life to life. The first truth is this. God is doing indescribable good. No, let me change that. God is doing infinite good in his disciplining of his children. God is doing infinite good in his disciplining of his children. This, this truth is so important because of the great twin dangers of, of weariness, verse 3, and bitterness, verse 15. <clears throat> when life is the worst of times, it can become, well, either way, when life is the best of times or when life is the worst of times, either way, they can become trials that test our relationship with God. In these times, either way, we are, we are tempted to believe in our, in our trials of blessing or in our trials of suffering that God is no longer needed or good. This word weariness here, it, it means more than just being tired or exhausted. He's, he's not slamming getting tired by life. That's not the point. It's a conclusion, an inner conclusion that because of my exhaustion, God is no longer good. And, and, and we quietly and perhaps imperceptibly, no one else can see it, we turn in on ourselves and then we just stop. We just stop. Or in the case of bitterness, it, it's a belief that boils over into, into caustic, angry resentment. That same belief that God is no longer good. Maybe that he never was. In either case, weariness or bitterness, they keep us from God. That's why in verse 15, he says that bitterness defiles many. It keeps us from God. Bitterness keeps us from God and it spills out onto other people, infecting them. It is deathly. So the writer, the writer does something very important here as he, as he works his way through this. He, he takes all of our sufferings, even, even those that we don't deserve, all of our trials, and he, and he puts them under the label of the word discipline, the discipline of God. He develops this as he moves through verses 2 through verse 11, this, this developing of, of the concept of discipline. Jesus himself experienced the discipline of his Father as he endured the cross, verse 2. And he endured from sinners such hostility against himself, verse 3. 
going so far as to shed his own blood, verse 4. His own blood for us. Then the writer turns to us and says that wherever and whenever we experience these and other trials, we, like Jesus, are being treated like sons. No different than the Son of God. God was disciplining his own son. Why, verse 6? Because he chastises every son whom he receives. So the key phrase here, I think, is in verse 7. The reason why we have to endure suffering is for discipline. Even the suffering that can't be connected to, to anything that we have done, that too is discipline to us. Why? Because our God is treating us like sons. After all, verse 8, that's what an adequate father does. An adequate father disciplines his children. While I, I love All the children of this church in some way, at some level, there are only four here that I will take out into the hallway and administer some kind of discipline, right? Why? Because they're browns. Because they're my children. That's why. They're mine. God brings discipline to his children. He does this for, for three reasons, three reasons. The, the first one is pretty obvious, for the specific acts of sin of his children. God disciplines us. Uh, not, he, he disciplines us um, for the, the sins which the writer here says, which cling so closely to us that, that keep us from continuing the race, the, the sins that injure us and sicken us. God wants to separate us from those like any good father. So he brings discipline that we would repent. Again, I I think that's obvious. But then there is this this general character of sin that still remains within each one of us. This old man, this this old characteristic flesh that, that still remains within us. And for this, God disciplines us. Verse 10, that we would share in his holiness. Gradually, that we would, over time, more and more resemble his holiness, this holy, holy, holy God of a Father that we have. We'll come back to why in a second. But there is a third reason, and that's for the guilt of our sin, the legal justice due to us for our sin. God disciplines and praise God that he has done that, not on us, but on Christ for us. He poured out that discipline that was due to us on Christ, not upon us. And that means if you are in Christ, before we go any farther, we can say whatever God is doing in your life, Whatever God might be doing, however confusing it might be, it is never again a litmus test of your legal standing before him if you are in him. You never have to look at your circumstances and say, how does God really feel about me? That's over. The cross really does 
forever and ever and ever to you, Christian, it means forgiven. Period. But if you have never trusted in Christ, I, 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 this, this is the part of the sermon I don't actually enjoy saying. Like I say it with a little tremble in my voice. If you, if you are not a Christian, you remain under this third form of discipline. And you will spend eternity experiencing this. I don't, I don't say that to like scare you to becoming a Christian, but I figure you pay me to tell you the truth. So I'm being straight with you, that's it. But if you would become his child, he will only be motivated towards you in fatherly love to your infinite good. So trust him. So what do I mean by that, by infinite good? Well, back to this business of creating in us this, or causing us to share in his holiness. It begins with holiness, this infinite good. He brings discipline that we may share in his holiness. In other words, a likeness to him, this holy, holy, holy God. He's out to create a family resemblance. Specifically in the form of peace and righteousness. This is mentioned a couple times. He is making us into what we already are. Peace and righteousness was given to us when Jesus founded our faith and saved us. By his sacrifice, he created peace between us and our Father. And his righteousness was counted over to us. So we already are at peace. We already stand righteous before him. But now throughout our days, this good father is developing this this image. He is developing us into what we already are. Into people who look like his children. This is vital because verse 14 Without this peace and righteousness, no one can see the Lord. To put that another way, no one can be seated at the right hand of the Father without this peace and righteousness, which is another way of saying no one can inherit the blessing of sharing heaven with him forever without bearing his likeness, without bearing this holiness. God shares his eternal glory with all of those who are his true, authentic children. Of course he does. He's a father. And so God is, through disciplining us, his children, creating his likeness in us. And here it is, so that on that last day, it will be evident to all the universe, for you and for me. Yep, this one. He sure was not perfect, but he looks like his daddy. Yep, this one goes with that one. You better believe it. Of course this child goes with that father. 
He disciplines us to create in us the evidence that guarantees our entrance for us into, verse 22, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to Jesus himself. Verse 28, it guarantees that we will receive a kingdom that will never be shaken. That is what God is up to in his discipline. That is what our Father is up to. He is bringing us to infinite good. So this means, since his goal is this holiness, this this general likeness to him, and not just to discipline us for our particular known sins. This means that his discipline is at work in all of our experiences in life. If God is sovereign over all things, even the evil that we experience, even the evil that we do, and the consequences that come to us from that, even the residual evil within us, if you can imagine this, God orchestrates all of it to shape us into his likeness, into his holiness. Yes, you heard me right, even our own sin. That's how sovereign and powerful and good he is for his children. He uses everything. He doesn't waste a thing. So again, I I cannot begin to elaborate for you all of his purposes in your suffering and what you've experienced. Some of which is just sometimes hard and unending. Uh, Just this week, I heard of a mother whose 24-year-old son has the maturity in every way of a six-month-old. She lives in two rooms in her house, in his bedroom and her TV room. Dealing with him, then TV. This is her life. Dealing with him, then TV. Tomorrow she's going to do the same thing. Dealing with him, watching mysteries. That's it. This is her life. And this too falls under this word here of discipline. God is doing a million things in her life. But perhaps three or 30 or 300 or 3,000 of those things involve shaping her in some way through this suffering to come to faith in Christ. To deliver her to eternal life, to find true life. Perhaps he is protecting her in some hidden way from some other great evil that otherwise would have derailed her from coming to that life later in life. I don't know. Again, I I don't know God's mind on her, nor do I know his mind on what's happened to you in your life. But I I, I don't know either the 30,000 things that God was doing when you went through that difficult season or are now. But I know that some of those things had to do with this fatherly discipline, this, this shaping of you to bring you to this infinite good. Perhaps he was protecting you from some, something in the future that would have lured you away from him. Perhaps he is shaping you 
and I take away the word perhaps, I know that he is shaping you to be a useful tool for the endurance of someone else, which we'll talk about in a minute. But again, I, I don't know much about your life, but if God is sovereign over all things, even the evils that we experience and even the evils that we do, then he works in all of us to shape us to, into his likeness to do us infinite good. Think, just think about this for a second. Just let it soak in. This, we, we are running a race that we in ourselves cannot finish. But we have a Father who uses everything in our lives and who will never give up to bring us to the finish. Perhaps this recalibrates for you how you think about you and how you think about what has happened to you. Even, even at our best, we, we cannot, we are not ourselves capable of finishing this race. We are too prone to wander, to chafe under the trials, and to stop altogether. We need his discipline more than we realize. We are so prone to wander. That is why maybe for you, life after coming to Christ got harder, not easier. It's because you finally came under the fathering of one who finally fathers you for your good. Oh, you were fathered before too. But that father had a different end for you. I'm not talking about your earthly father. I'm talking about another father, hidden father who was luring you down a nice, smooth, curving path like a cow being gently herded up the ramp, up, up, up until the, the last flash of lethal bolts of electricity would have dropped you for slaughter. This better father is out for your true good. But you ask, well, why must it be this way? Why must it be this bad in my life? Why does it have to be this painful path? Again, I, I don't know for you, but I do know that we can look to Jesus and we can see that he himself does not exempt himself from our pain. He endured the greatest suffering to be shamefully killed and abandoned by God so that we could be welcomed as his children. Jesus knows the pain of the discipline of God like nobody else. And we see that from his infinitely undeserved, infinitely unfair suffering came the greatest good. The pathway to life forever with God. So we can know, even if we can't see all the logic of God, that in union with Christ, he is fathering us just as he did his own son. To his very right hand to be seated with Jesus on the very throne of Jesus forever. We can know that a hard turn in our life does not mean that we have been abandoned by God. Jesus was abandoned so that we would never be. But you ask, well, why, why not those people? 
Why me and not them, whoever they are? Well, for one, you don't know what they're going through. But if they're Christians, then we're all in this together. We are all under the same fatherly discipline because we are his children. We are all in this together with Jesus. And whoever they are, if they are not legitimate children of his, well, perhaps that too is your answer as to why you and not them. Jesus says to us, as he did Peter, when Peter asked about John, what's that to you? You follow me for your infinite good. So in Christ, our identity has changed. We are now the child of a perfect father who is fathering us in discipline perfectly. So the challenge is, the challenge is to believe and to remember our identity. And this leads us then to the second truth. Perhaps it is the most necessary thing for us. It is this. We endure suffering by embracing our identity as his beloved children. We endure suffering by embracing our identity as his beloved children. Or to put this in the negative, our biggest problem in endurance, I think, is that we function too much like autonomous adults. We resist his fatherly shaping. This is why I'm convinced, this is why so many people in churches have found so little traction with our American culture. We rah-rah cheer on evangelism, all the while assuming that our lives sufficiently portray Christ. We sufficiently picture Jesus, but outsiders don't see it. That's because most people are from Missouri. They say, show me. Show me. But for many of us, and I, and I, I put myself in this, I say us. If our unsafe friends were to follow us around for a week, they probably, knowing most of you, they probably would not see rank hypocrisy. But they may not also see, for the joy set before Jed, he endured blank this week, despising the shame that comes along with enduring blank. This is because we recoil from all forms of suffering. And we're Americans, after all. What do we need to suffer for? We refuse to welcome it in. Now, on the one hand, this is natural, and I love my country. I'm thankful for our blessings. Nobody welcomes suffering. And I don't mean that we go looking for suffering. But we suffer when we see something that's better, that's worth it. Then we'll suffer a lot. I simply mean that when God brings suffering into our path or suffering is required for simple ongoing obedience, for purity, for tithing, for loving our neighbor, we recoil. This is, I believe, one big reason why the power of our evangelism is just so anemic. It is not adorned with sacrifice. 
So perhaps as I've, as I've thought about it and I, I've kind of checked myself on this, perhaps it is because we are not able to despise the shame that comes with sacrifice. That is, to count it as nothing of consequence to us. Despise. Shame has to do with identity, right? If the shame of some suffering can, can hook itself into something in my identity, then that shame has a hold on me. It has a weight. It, it keeps me from embracing that suffering. But if my identity is found in, and grounded somewhere else, then the, 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 the shame that comes, it has no weight. It has no importance to me. Therefore, it has no influence on me. It can't hook itself into me. It can't stop me from welcoming in that suffering. I'm, I'm free to count it as unimportant. It, I'm, I'm free to let it hang around my neck because what's it to me? My identity is elsewhere. Actually, it's in someone else. So the, the very simple but powerful point here is that we must ever be looking to Jesus and see in our union with him our new identity as privileged, beloved sons of the living God. Children. And this, this work of convincing us of this is one of the Spirit's primary jobs to help us remember who we are. And oh, how we need this when we endure trials. Because in the trial, is it not just so easy to forget yourself? Happy Mother's Day. Ask a mother here of, say, two or three children under the age of four what she knows about forgetting herself. You know, ask her if she knows anything about what it feels like to forget yourself after the 137th diaper and another load of laundry and one kid is sick and about to get the other kid sick and the husband is traveling and the kids aren't behaving. She hasn't had a shower in who knows how long, nor has she completed a full adult sentence in a week. And the hamper's full again and there's another diaper and, and, you, you forget yourself. Or ask a man at midlife who has lost his job. Forget yourself. Or ask someone going through leukemia treatments and the, the constant nausea that goes along with it. And all of it, it is so easy to forget who we are or to find out that the identity that we were holding on to all along was sand through my fingers. Worthless. We need a bigger identity, a stronger identity, one that transcends all these things. And sadly, sadly, so often we quench the very power that gives us this identity and grounds us in this true identity. We quench the Spirit. Paul commands us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to not quench the Spirit. And, you know, often we, we think about that verse in the context of, whether or not, say, how to, how to welcome and how to engage in prophecy in the, in the gathered congregation, and rightly so. But I'm convinced that we quench the Spirit far more often by refusing to let Him tell us who we are. 
we neglect his voice and we let our exhaustion have the final say. We allow those inner voices that speak to us on our pillows at night or in the morning to shape our identity instead of him. Those voices are our own very adult voices. And our great need, therefore, is to humble ourselves like children. Like children, our great need is to let the Spirit's voice speak over our own, to let our Father tell us who we are and whose we are. You're mine. So how do we keep from quenching the Spirit? Well, first, we resist platitudes. And we resist listening to the voices within. And we open our Bibles. We open our Bibles and we let the Spirit speak. Let me just give you a few places where this afternoon you can look and find out who you are. Ephesians 1. Hebrews 2. Colossians 3. Galatians 4, different numbering, Isaiah 43, Owen Genesis 1, made in the image of God. We open our Bibles and we let the Bible tell us who we are. And then we pray, we pray for the Spirit to to convince me, to to show me, to, to fill me with this truth to straighten my back in this suffering with the knowledge that I am the privileged son of the king. But then the third way, we look at our Bibles, first we pray, second, but then the third way is found in verses 12 through 17, and it is somewhat hidden by our English translations. Every verb there is plural. Every you, every your, We are all in this together. We are all under this fatherly discipline. And we quench the Spirit. We quench the Spirit, brother and sister, not only to ourselves, but to each other. Whenever we neglect to notice how those around us are are bending towards or away from God and our joint suffering together. For instance, husbands and fathers we quench the spirit when we, when we cluelessly don't carve out some kind of Sabbath rest for our wives. We can quench the spirit in others' lives. We do this whenever we put up, for instance, alternate or competing identities in front of each other that distract us from our true identity. What I mean is, for instance, that the only satisfying life is the married life or a life with kids or when we equate following Christ with following a particular political movement or political party. The ethos of this family, the responsibility of being a member in this family is to be grace one to the other as we walk under this Father's discipline. This means... For instance, in your community group, there is never not, never not anything going on. Because everybody there is under this same fatherly discipline that we are all in together. 
And every person you see is doing one of two things. Is either bending towards God in it in a childlike way or bending away from him in adult weariness and bitterness. Everyone is doing this. There is never not anything going on. So when we see, verse 12, drooping hands and limbs put lame by the temporary discipline of our Father, it is our responsibility to courageously move towards each other and feed each other the gospel, feed each other our new identity, remind each other of who we are in Christ. We remind each other, verse 14, that we are already people who have been made at peace with God, possessing in Jesus the righteousness of God. So we encourage each other, keep going. Keep going in who you are, a child of this holy God. And whenever we see bitterness creep in, we, we put before each other the goodness of God. That is, we put before each other Jesus, broken for you, suffering for, suffered for you, risen for you, at the right hand of the Father, brother or sister, for you, giving you his spirit to lead you through life to where he is. It's biblical community is loving each other enough to say, over my dead body will I see you fail to receive the grace of God. Or better yet, over the body of Christ will I see you fail to receive the grace of God. Because I'm going to put him in front of you so much, you may still leave but you'll have to trample over his very blood to do it. This is not super Christian life. This is not super Christian husbanding. This is normal. This is our family. This is our father's family. This is what we do. So what about for this woman that I mentioned earlier, this woman at the beginning with the, the six-month-old, 24-year-old? What do, we, what do we do? How do we approach her? Well, I think, again, we, we resist platitudes, even with Scripture. As glorious and as beautiful as Romans 8, 28 is, we resist the the impulse to share it at every turn, and instead we listen. We get close and we listen. We listen well, we enter into her life, we see what it's like to move from bedroom to TV room. We listen to her broken dreams, we grieve, and something happens. As we enter into her suffering, we are even then picturing Christ who has entered into ours. And then at some point we speak. And we speak of a God who would take all of these evils and create out of them infinite, unending glory. Glory is good. 
we set joy before her. Because it will only be by the joy set before her that she will endure to life. So we set joy before ourselves and then we labor, we labor to, to winsomely set joy before her. And we let the Spirit do His work. As we, as we do this, as we, as we put Him before us, as we look to Him, and as we believe this, this new identity, something else happens. As He disciplines us and, and shapes us, we, we end up not taking it too glibly, but also not taking it too crushingly, becoming weary. Instead, we, we learn to respect God for His fathering. We respect Him even more than the respect we gave to our earthly parents. We revere Him. We stand in awe of His power in fathering us. We stand in awe of the fact that this God is a consuming fire. And yet, with His awesome power, He is a God who does not break the bruised reed. But He carries me, and He carries me, and He leads me by His Spirit, and He does not let me go. We see a God who is up to infinite good, who is marshalling all of the power, all of the resources, everything in the universe for this end to bring me to this infinite good, to His glory. That happens moment by moment, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. The Spirit shows us more and more and more of this. And something very weird, very alien begins to happen. In the middle of our trials, in the middle of our sufferings, we begin to worship Him for it. Strangest thing. We begin to worship Him and glorify Him at the weirdest times. And then the world looks in, the world looks in and sees something. Now they say, you've shown me something. That's not right. Oh, that's not normal. That's alien. Where does that come from? We become overcomers by looking to Jesus. In closing, uh, just stop with me for a moment and ask yourself, just imagine, stretch your imagination for just a moment and imagine what it might be like on that day when we see the Lord and you and I are so changed that even if we could remember every detail of every trial, every wrong thing that was ever done to us, even if we could go back and, and just see it all, that we would be so transformed by His infinite goodness that we wouldn't even come close to bitterness. We wouldn't even... It wouldn't even enter our minds. But for the joy right before us. The infinite good right before us. I have a hard time imagining that. And yet it is still true. So, may God by His Spirit give us faith to see His goodness in His disciplining us. 
May he give us grace to embrace our identity. May he give us grace to listen to the Spirit tell us who we really are. That we would endure as his beloved children the life at his right hand forever. Let me pray. Father, that's my prayer for our infinite good and your eternal glory would you do this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.